You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We've arrived at the tail end of uh, the letter of Jude. This is it. This is the last class and uh, grateful that this is how it ends. So let's look this morning at verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able, that is the Lord Jesus, now to him, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we do pray that you, by your Spirit, would open the eyes of our hearts and that we might behold you. And Lord, that uh, as we come to the end of the letter, that we might ponder these things in our hearts and uh, reflect on them as to what you are saying to us uh, today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a famous doxology. Uh, if any of you know anything about the letter of Jude, and, and let's be honest, most of us don't, uh, if we know anything about it, it's this doxology. Uh, and I, as I read it more and more, I think this is a great way to end a service, isn't it? Um, I, I love the liturgical, uh, there's a couple spots up here. Tanya, is that you? Who's that? Taylor's, hello. Um, and y'all, yeah, oh yeah, we got a lot of spots up here. Um, uh, we close our services with uh, the uh, doxology, the benediction that uh, Thomas Cranmer drafted, uh, the peace of God which passeth all understanding, uh, which of course you can find uh, in the Bible as well. Uh, but there are times where I feel like this would be a great closing to a service, wouldn't it? Uh, in fact, it may be the most beautiful of all the liturgical uh, benedictions or doxologies uh, in the New Testament. Um, so even though we stick with the prayer book, uh, we can't go far wrong by offering up this gem from the Bible. Uh, after saying all that is controversial in his letter, uh, both in Jude's day and ours, because all that we've gone over heretofore uh, is controversial in any day. And why is something controversial? Because it's true. It's, it, it relates, it's pertinent uh, to our day and age as much as it was in Jude's. And indeed, uh, in any time and place, uh, there's never a, uh, a, a time and a place, I think, in the life of the Christian church where someone said, you know what, Jude's just not speaking to us right now. Uh, there, there's never been a time uh, where Jude's letter hasn't been uh, untrue. And now, he says, now, in light of all that, of all that being a right diagnosis of the danger of false teaching, which leads to immorality. Remember, we said that immorality is not uh, the first thing that happens. It's a presenting symptom. And so if there's immorality in the life of the church. If you look back, you'll see that it all began with false teaching. And that false teaching ultimately, we read this in verse 4, perverts the grace of God into sensuality, that's the gospel, and denies our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because of that false teaching that you're guaranteed to see immorality in the life of the church, whether that be a local congregation or whether it be on a wider scale uh, denominationally or geographically. And with scalpel-like precision, Dr. Jude goes to work on the cancer that is besetting the early church and the church throughout the ages, most certainly the church today. Without this doxology, I'm not so sure that I would teach on this book of the Bible. If it ended where we ended last week, uh, that would be rough. Uh, for those of you that have been tracking along, some of these classes I'm sure have made you squirm, made you feel uncomfortable, made you think, I don't like this. It may be true, you might say, it's true, but I still don't like it. But it's absolutely essential, this doxology, to tying everything together that Jude is trying to say. 
Though the doxology may be liturgical in its derivation, that is, this may have been something that the early church said over and over again to close their services. I don't think that Jude just tacked it on at the end. And some scholars will say that. Well, Jude just didn't know how to end the letter, so he just tacked this on at the end as if he needed some kind of conclusion after he had run out of red-hot steam. No, this doxology reiterates what Jude said at the very beginning of the letter. So keeping in mind the doxology, hear what he says in the first uh, two verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father and God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Right? So it's, it's a prayer. He's, he's greeting those of us who are uh, called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And that's exactly how he closes, isn't it? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you. Now, Jude has returned to this thing of called, beloved, and kept. If you haven't been following with me uh, since the very beginning, you'll be grateful that this is where we've arrived. Uh, if all that we have spoken of before did not scare you, it certainly scared me. It was heavy going. Uh, and Jude is no respecter of persons, and he turns the scattergun on all of us. Because after all, it's not just the false teachers that he's condemning. Who is he writing the letter to? The churches. He's writing to the churches, meaning I'm giving you a hard time about this. What's your response to this? How are you handling this in the life of your individual congregation? The three great enemies that we have met in Jude's letter are enemies that can nearly destroy the church. Now, I want to say this. The church, the church can never be destroyed, right? We believe that. That, that God says, uh, the Lord Jesus says that even the gates of hell will never prevail against God's church. And yet, this false teaching which leads to immorality can and does, and does destroy churches. Uh, the irony is not lost on me that some of the churches that Jude is writing to, where are they today? Gone. Gone. Once great and powerful, like Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus today and, and other parts of Turkey, uh, what's left of the Christian community are ruins that date back to their high point. And so we need to be very careful that we don't think, well, that would never happen to a place like the Advent. And yet one day it may be that people are taking tours of the ruins of the once great Advent. And why did those churches fall? It's not enough to say that it was a geopolitical issue where the Muslims came in or anything like that, because we know from church history why those areas eventually fell away and the church died. It couldn't have been just persecution, because we see from church history that what happens when the church is most persecuted? It grows. It grows. And a lot of that has to do with the contrast that the church provides against the culture of the day, which is where we are right now. So the worse the culture gets, the more Christianity stands out, one for scorn, but also for admiration. Because it's different. It, it doesn't go the way of the culture, wherever the culture might be going. And so I, I, it's really hard for me to forget that in the early church, when a child would be uh, in those days in the Roman Empire, when a child would be born with a deformity or born a girl, parents would sometimes take their children, infants, and lay them out on a stone in the woods and allow the God of fate to deal with their future. And who went into the woods to get those babies? Christians. Brought them into their homes, loved them and raised them as their own, and I'm sure it caused just a little bit of controversy when a man or a woman was walking down the street and saw a child with a cleft palate that looks just a little bit like them and made them wonder, is that the child that I laid in the woods? Going home to their family, Christians 
who rescued them. So as, as the culture around us changes, the contrast becomes more uh, severe and, uh, and yet more beautiful. It, Christianity is a different way of doing things. And when Christianity capitulates to the culture, which is one of the things we're going to get to, uh, it means our end. I was in North Africa, and uh, as, as one often is, and uh, I was there in Carthage, and there's this ancient cathedral in Carthage, and that's where St. Louis is buried, if you're ever interested in seeing whatever happened to St. Louis. Uh, he's there, and uh, what's left of him. And uh, there in this ancient cathedral in Latin, in the roof of the building, uh, it says... Apart from Rome, is there any other is there any other greater sea than that of Carthage in Christendom? Well, where's the church in Carthage now? It's in St. Louis's box, rot and bone. And why did the church in North Africa go downhill? False teaching. That's the story of the church in North Africa. And the false teaching led them to a place where they just weren't strong in their biblical stances. So when uh, the Muslims came through, they just capitulated and went over. So uh, this false teaching can destroy church. That's what destroys churches. They introduce these, uh, these three great enemies that I'm going to talk about. They introduce a deadly virus into the life of the church, much deadlier than even COVID-19. The virus they bring is in is immorality. If Satan can plant it in the church, it will come very close to destroying it. Now, the three great enemies that we encounter on the road uh, in Jude's letter are one, sinful nature, two, our sin-sick society, and three, the devil, our sinful nature, what we're really capable of. Jude really wants us to get in touch and say, do you understand just how twisted and corrupt our sinful nature is? Now, we live in a day and age where people say, well, I'm really not that bad. And this is why uh, magazines like People fly off the shelves, because we can read People magazine and start feeling really good about ourselves. Because if God's grading on the curve, thank God for the Kardashians, right? <laughs> we look really good uh, when, and, uh, and, and that really, and that's the nature of gossip, isn't it? That the gossip is the hope that God will grade on the curve. And yet, even those of us who are able to acknowledge because God's brought us to a place where we understand our own sinfulness and brokenness I don't think that we ever get to a place where we understand it at its depths. And that may actually be a good working definition of sanctification, that as you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, you realize more and more each day just how sinful you are, but moreover, just how much you need Jesus more and more every single day. And so we see this played out in uh, the, the tornado that went through Fultondale. Uh, within an, a couple hours of the tornado going through, I read the headline on AL.com, looters arrested and curfew uh, enforced in the Fultondale area. Right? In the midst of terrible tragedy, human beings are saying, hey, here's a real opportunity for us to cash in on the, the brokenness of this place. And it would be very easy for us to sit back and say, well, those are those people. Those are people who live in Fultondale. Or, or those are, the, are the, a, a, a very small group of people that most of us would never do that. Uh, but try thinking through that rationally even when you're walking through Buchenwald or Auschwitz. When you're walking through the concentration camps, and Buchenwald is, is particularly... Mary, you were there with me when we were there last. Buchenwald, Buchenwald, you can see Weimar, which is this beautiful city. And before uh, Nazism, there was the Weimar Republic. And Weimar was the center of liberality in Germany that was bringing in this, this great new hope and, and human potential. It was the birthplace of... It was sort of like Philadelphia, the spirit of 1776 for us. 
And yet there's Buchenwald looking down on Weimar. And of course, as awful as the Holocaust was, one of the great terrors is that a whole nation allowed it to happen. They weren't people that were just like looters in Fultondale. They were people just like you and me. And so we're not in a position to say, well, if I lived in that time and place, or if I was in this situation, I would certainly do that. Only by the grace of God would you not be given over to that. And if you weren't given over to it, it would certainly mean standing against the tide, which, of course, is what um, Jude is commending us for. So our own sinful nature is prone to want to pervert God's grace, to give ourselves over to that. The second, uh, sin-sick society, and you can find that especially in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That when you live in Sodom and Gomorrah, it's really hard for a little bit of it not to rub off on you. That really is true. That's actually one of the great criticisms of uh, Islam against Christianity. Because Islam identifies Christianity exclusively with the West. And so if you ask a Muslim from the Middle East, what is Christianity? And they'll say it's people who watch rated R movies and eat barbecue sandwiches, basically. That, that, that's why they think Christian, Christianity is so immoral, because the society and Christianity has been so conflated together. And, and we all feel that, don't we? We feel that acutely in our own lives as we go throughout our lives and we hold Christian convictions and the world around us no longer agrees. And so at best, we just kind of keep it to ourselves. And uh, because we know that if we speak up, we might not get invited to so-and-so's cocktail party. But, uh, but Jude is saying even in this day and age, it's real. I know what it's like to live in Sodom and Gomorrah. I, uh, the Bible is, is painfully aware of what it's like to live in a sin-sick culture and the influence that that has on each and every single one of us. And thirdly, the devil. Now, the devil doesn't come out into the open, but look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. So what he's talking about are people and then elsewhere... Uh, he uses the example of the angels um, who, have, uh, who have fallen, and I'm trying to find that uh, just for reference. Yeah, verse 9, thank you. Um, extra wafer for you, Craig. Um, but when the archangel Michael contending, uh, well, that, uh, contending with the devil, so that there's, the devil is in this. Right? The devil is the father of lies. He's the one that's orchestrating all of this. And the way that the devil goes after the church is not... Um, well, Jude says the way that the devil goes after the church is to get false teachers in. That's the way he does it. Uh, you know, He doesn't say, hey, I want you to go into the church and wear this sign that says, I am a wolf. And no false teacher is ever going to preface their opening you know, line in a sermon or they're not going to say, you know, hey, I just want you to know that I'm a false teacher. And I've crept in, uh, but here we go. Uh, no, it's uh, even Satan himself is masquerading as an angel of light. So uh, the devil is uh, alive and well and is active in the world uh, clearly. And so against such enemies, sinful nature, sin-sick society, the devil, how in the world can we stand against such opposition? Well, the doxology tells us. My hope is in God alone. Now, there's a negative and a positive here in the doxology. The first, the negative. He who is able to keep you from stumbling. He who is able to keep you from stumbling. So that's a preventative action. God is able to keep you from making a great fall. Now, we do see Christians making great falls, uh, sometimes uh, Humpty Dumpty-like falls where it seems like they will never be able to be put back together. But here we read that God is able to keep us from disaster. Now, that is uh, a remarkable thing, and we're going to talk about that. So that's the negative. The positive is that he will present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. In spite of my brokenness, 
God will present you and I as blameless and be ushered into his presence one day. What a miracle those two things are. Miraculous. Now, I'm going to go ahead and start uh, with, uh, I'm going to do in reverse. Let's start with the positive. That he's going to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now, what does that sound like to you? Yes, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter five. And we're going to go there in, uh, well, let's go there right now. So if you want to put a finger in Jude and go over to Ephesians five, God eats potato chips two times is a good way to remember uh, the official epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and so on. Uh, so Ephesians chapter uh, five. Uh, so this is, this is Paul speaking here, but... Um, I want to preface this, that that really what uh, heaven is, is worship. But when I say worship, almost all of us think of what we do on Sunday mornings, right? So, uh, and even more particularly, if I said to you, let's stand and worship the Lord, what do you think we're going to do next? Sing. Well, worship has, I mean, that is worship, but worship is much bigger than that. Worship in the Bible is is the idea of our whole lives being given over to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how I drive on 280 is just as much worship as me sitting in the pew on Sunday. Our whole lives are worship because how we live our lives gives an indicator of what it is that we worship. And Jude is saying that you are going to be presented blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, that we will have perfect worship in heaven. Now, there's a lot of singing in heaven. There's a lot of all that. And when when people say that heaven is all worship, I don't want you to think um, that it's just like, well, we're all sitting in a pew for eternity, right? That's not going to be good evangelism for the kids. That's not going to be, but actually we will finally be in a place where our worship, our lives of the Lord Jesus Christ is perfect. And so let's, and, and that is the goal. That's the goal. That's, that's where we're going. So look at Ephesians chapter five. Uh, so for anybody who thinks, well, heaven is the ultimate goal. Uh, in some sense, that's true. Uh, but it's really, we're the focus of God's ultimate goal. Did you know that? This is why Jesus talks so much about you being his treasure. Jesus is the one who goes and sells uh, all of that he has in order to purchase you the pearl of great price. Right? He's the one who's digging around in the dirt and finds you and goes and sells all that he has in order that he might buy the lot in order to capture you. You are the object of his passion. You're the object of his love. And so actually... It's not so much heaven being the object uh, from God's perspective, but what he's going to do for you, in you, and to you. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. And of course, this is um, um, a famous wedding passage, which would do us all well to read uh, time and time again in the right context. But I'm going to look at verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the goal. Now, Paul is using marriage as as an example because marriage is the... closest thing that we have when it comes to intimate relationships that show us what the relationship is like between Jesus and his church. So um, how many, don't show, don't raise your hands. uh, When we first got married that we thought this is just going to be bliss and this is going to be a lovely melding together of, of two worlds. And then within a week, or a month, or a couple months, you start thinking, as one person came in to me and said, you know, I, I, I think I married the wrong person. And I looked at him and I said, we all marry the wrong person. 
Spouses make bad gods. Just remember that. Spouses make bad gods. Uh, but what we, what we don't know about marriage until we know it is that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the world's, you know, two becoming one is not just, it is this, but it's not simply the melding together in this beautiful way of two lives. It's like tectonic plates crashing together to form this new life. And it's in the same way, that's the way it is with Jesus, that he is lowly and gentle, but the Christian life is really hard. Like marriage, it's totally worth it. But even the washing of the word, of being in, in, in God's word and letting God do, well, I really shouldn't say that because I'm going to contradict myself, but but God doing his work upon us through his word. So when Paul says, you know, wash one another with the word so that he might present the church himself in splendor, it's, it's like when I was a kid and during the summertime, uh, my mother greeted us every morning with these words. Get out. <laughs> Get out and do not come back until it's time to eat. And then after lunch, Get out. And then, uh, I don't know what she did all day, but anyway, when, uh, whatever she wanted. Uh, and uh, when we would get back in the afternoon, she would greet us with these words. Get in the bathtub. And uh, I grew up in a very rural area. We had dirt bikes, we had horses, and we just went for it all day long. It was great. Had a rope swing into the creek. It was just so much fun. And uh, I'd, I'd go in the bathtub and uh, run the bath, and I would lower myself into the bathtub and all of those bruises and cuts and scrapes that I was blissfully unaware of before I got into that bathtub were painfully known in that moment. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul says that's what marriage is like, and that's what being in a relationship with Jesus is like. All of a sudden, you're made aware of your brokenness. You're made aware of all the bruises in your life. And of course, and that's freedom, Right? That's freedom that God knows you uh, as you are. And the whole idea is that, that God is doing a work in your life in order to present you as spotless and blameless. And it's not necessarily that Christianity is constant moral improvement. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what Jude is saying. But in fact, that you're washing yourself daily in the word, in the blood of Jesus Christ. As Luther said, all of the Christian life is repentance. Which is saying, I'm going in the wrong direction and I'm going to turn and go toward the Lord Jesus Christ. My life is in him. That's who I am. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, when we are presented before that throne, we will be spotless and we will be blameless because of his grace and mercy, his cross, and not because of anything that we've done. And so that is the goal. <clears throat> now, along the way, looking at the negative, we're given this promise that he will keep us. It's really lovely to know, and, and theologically, I think it's easier for us to grab hold of it. Okay. I know I'm going to be perfect on that day. I know I'm going to be delivered on that day. And in some ways, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about it lately um, during the COVID that, um, you know, one of the things that I've never said in a funeral that I probably will say from every other funeral forward is that this dear departed brother or sister no longer struggles with sin. And for the Christian, when you really think about that, it just brings great joy to me that the struggle is over. And Christians understand that. And even the old prayer book understand it when it was so strange. And I remember uh, using the old prayer book for a funeral and someone actually came up to me and said, I don't like that. And it was, uh, Lord, it is, um, how's it go? Lord, um, in your mercy, you have, you have delivered this, our brother, this, our sister, out of this sinful and naughty world. It's a great prayer. All right, so, so death in some way, it's a deliverance from this sinful and naughty world, and the struggle is over. So I think that many of us can probably grasp that theologically of, oh, what a day that will be, and, and, and I believe it. But what does it look like now? 
It's a little bit harder to grapple with right now because for those of us who are Christians, we struggle. We struggle mightily. But God promises that he will keep us. Um, I was at a Christian conference uh, once, full, uh, a pastor's conference, and the speaker said, I want you to look at your neighbor, not look at them, but just out of the corner of your eye, just sort of look at them and, uh, and give thanks to God because the fact that they're still in Christian ministry after all these years is nothing shy of a miracle. And that's, that, that's, that's true. Um, uh, I, I have many uh, brothers who have uh, gone into full-time Christian ministry uh, that are no longer in full-time Christian ministry. Uh, it's not that they had a great fall, but they just, they just faded away. And part of it is that I don't think that they really believe that God would keep them. So let's look at some uh, passages. You don't have to necessarily flip to them, but uh, good passages to write down and put up on your mirror in your bathroom. Psalm 56, the Psalms are full of this. Psalm 56 Uh, I'm going to bounce around a little bit in here just for brevity. But be gracious to me, O God, for, for man tramples upon me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? You, Verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? 13. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. That I may walk before God in the light of life. Uh, Psalm 66, verse 8. And going on. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. Right? Uh, and then uh, probably uh, one of the, uh, so I'm not going to read it. Psalm 91.9 is also very good, but I'm going to flip over to 1 Corinthians 1.8. 1 Who will sustain you to, let's, I'm going to actually, um, let's back up. Just as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, who does that sound like? Jude. Beloved, called, kept. God who calls you into fellowship with him through Jesus Christ promises to keep you. Do you believe it? Does God actually keep you? Now, there are several responses to this. The first is disbelief. Some may say, God cannot keep me. I must try to keep myself. Or really, I do my best and then God picks up where I leave off. Uh, I grew up in a household that was full of all kinds of bad, good advice. And uh, we had all these little sayings. And one of them was, work as it depended on you and pray as if it depended upon God. And what does that really mean? You better work really hard. Because another little saying we had in our house, my grandfather would say is, Andrew, God will provide or not. <laughs> right? So you're on your own. And of course, this is nothing new. This is medieval spirituality. This is what Luther railed against at the Reformation. The idea is that if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you do? You get out of the world. You go join a monastery. You go, go join a nunnery. You, you shelter yourself from the world. 
Luther said that as he entered into the Augustinian monastery, he did it in order to, quote, save his soul. Now, this kind of thinking says that God can only keep you in certain contexts. He can keep you on Sunday, but not in the office on Monday. If that is true, then Jude, Paul, the psalmist, God's word is wrong. Can God keep me no matter who I am or where I am? Jude says, yes, God will keep you. Now, maybe you're a little bit better and you uh, have a qualified belief. God can only keep me if I let him. We don't allow God to do things. He allows us to do things. When I was uh, an undergrad at the University of Virginia, there was a little tiny grocery store chain called Farmer Jack's. And that's where all the students went. And uh, I spent every summer uh, at UVA because it was fun. And I remember it was a very hot day. And I was going into the Farmer Jack's. And there was this uh, 1970s, probably, Oldsmobile two-door coupe. It was, and I remember the color. It was this kind of green color. So the big doors and, and all that. And this is, we didn't have these things to unlock the doors and all that. Well, in that car, there was a crowd around it, so I walked over, and there was a little girl who was locked in the car, and she had perspiration pouring down her face. Her face was red. She had been screaming, but got to a point where she could no longer scream anymore, and everybody outside the car kept yelling at her, just lift up the little lock latch, you know, the little, just, just lift up lift that up and, 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 and let us in. Just lift it up. And no matter how hard people yelled and no matter how clear they were, this girl, we thought was, this is going to be really bad. Until there was this big burly guy and he was just kind of watching what was going on. He walked up on the scene, took a couple seconds to look, walked back to his truck. It was a tow truck. He got a crowbar, told the girl, get down in the front seat and lie down. And then he took the crowbar and smashed the window open, reached in, and he pulled the girl out. Well, that's how God is with us. You know, God's not out there yelling, just unlock the door of your heart. God sees us in our brokenness and our inability to respond to him unless he first intervenes. If, he, if you're coming through the door, it's because he's broken in and rescued you and pulled you out. Right? Because we're dead when we're inside there, right? And it's not until God says, Lazarus, come out, where our bodies are activated and the stone is rolled away that we're actually able to come out of the tomb. And so if we think he can only keep me if I let him, that's not what Judas is saying here. He's saying he's going to keep you. Full stop. If you're waiting around for God to let you, that's when you fall. That's when you fall. If you're waiting around for God to let you keep him, you're going to fall. Because remember, he keeps you. You don't keep him. Because, well, I mean, let's get a, a real visual uh, on this. Um, you know, if, if you've ever held the hand of a, of a child um, and it's any sort of rocky terrain, um, at some point, if you're relying on this child to hold on to you, what's going to happen? They're going to fall right on their face. And so when you're walking along, how is the only way that you're able to keep them on their feet? You hold on to them. Right? You, you have a grip on them almost to the point where you feel them falling and you just kind of yank them along as they go. And it's the same way with God. And because God keeps me, therefore I am keeping myself in God's love. I'm throwing myself on his mercy. I'm saying, God, you have to keep me. Keep me, Lord. And when we are subject to temptation, when we feel the great fall coming, we do grip harder onto him, but we trust more that he has his grip on us. Because we're given over to have freedom. 
I mean, think about that. If you were to go through life and to say, God is going to keep me, how would that change your life? Finances? God is actually going to keep me. My wayward children? God is going to keep me. My marriage? God is going to keep me. Our own individual problems in our lives, those sins that we find so hard to overcome, God is going to keep you. Even if you don't overcome that sin, that makes you no different than Paul. What did St. Paul He described it as what? Thorn in the flesh. And he prayed time and time again that God would remove it. But he came to find out that God in his mercy did not remove it in order that Paul might understand his deep need for Jesus. Didn't mean that he gave himself over to it. Didn't mean that he said it was a gift. Uh, It didn't mean that he said that this is something to be celebrated. But what he said is that it makes me understand that God's grace is sufficient for me. And if I am to overcome it, if I'm to live with it until that day when I'm presented, presented blameless and spotless, God has to keep me, and God kept him. Now, the last bit as we come to the closing time. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. God is characteristically our Savior. Earlier on, we talked about God's default position. What is God's default nature toward his children. Mercy, not anger. So anytime somebody says God is an angry God, they've already misunderstood him because anywhere God gets angry in the Bible, how did he get angry? He was provoked. I will give anybody a a dinner at Highlands if you can find in the Bible for me where God is provoked to mercy. That's a safe bet for me, by the way. <laughs> One, it's closed right now. And two, it's just not in the Bible. Um, but God doesn't have to be provoked to mercy because that's who he is. He has to be provoked to uh, anger. And, uh, and God is characteristically our, our savior. He's in the rescuing business. But there are times, especially when God is provoked to anger, uh, that we see that God is also a just judge. Not one thing goes unnoticed. And so when you do see injustice in the world, when we see that he has glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever, do you know what that means? That when we see injustice in the world, so as you're walking through Buchenwald, And you go to where the chambers were. Not one name of those people who perished in that camp is unknown to God. Not one. God sees it all. And as awful as the Holocaust was, it's nothing compared to the judgment of God that those of us who will face who don't find our rest in him. All that bothers you as a result of your sanctification in Christ, that is, so far as your mind is the same as Jesus' mind, does not escape God's notice. As I tell my children, no one gets away with anything. It's not done in the dark. It's not forgotten to history. It is remembered in the mind of God. Unless, what? You're called, beloved, and kept. Now, we all know our own brokenness, and it ought to make us uh, shudder to think that God remembers everything that we've done in our lives. But what Jude is saying here about being presented blameless uh, 
and, and keeping us is this amazing miracle. It's not as if God is like an Italian grandmother who knows you're really bad but decides to look the other way. Right? That, that's not what's going on here. Uh, but in fact, God sees you as you are, but you're covered in the blood of Jesus. And because you're in Christ, he looks at you the way he looks at Jesus. It's a remarkable thing. So it's, it's, not, um, it's not some legal fiction. It's not a trick. Uh, it's actually to be covered uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because all of that wrath... All of that anger, all of that judgment was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. What an awful thing. That all the punishment for the sin of the world from beginning to end is laid on Jesus. So that one, he cries what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it kills him. You know the narrative. Typically, when someone is crucified, uh, the, the Roman guards have to, have to kill them with a spear because crucifixion is often not enough to, to kill the person. But, but not so with Jesus. He died. It killed him. In the midst of false teaching and immorality, God is still God. What is miraculous is that he provides a way of salvation, a way of forgiveness for those things done in the dark. This righteous judge is what Luther calls God's strange work. It's actually not his normal work. It's his strange work. It's, this is God's side hustle. It is not his default position because we know that God desires not the death of a sinner, but that they would turn to him and live he is a merciful and saving God at his very core. And this is the God who is glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. He's always there. He will always be there before all time and into eternity. He's Alpha and Omega. So what is our response to this letter? Well, we see it here in the doxology. But I want to go over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's our response to Jude's letter? Praise and glory. It's rejoicing. It's rejoicing that we're called, beloved, and kept. And that, yes, there's a call on God's, uh, God has a call on each and every single one of our lives. But we can move forward in freedom and faithfulness to do what God has called us to do, standing against the false teaching of our day. But we do so with rejoicing and praise and glory. Because we're not the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department. Right? Judgment is not ours. I mean, we are called to judge in the sense that we say, hey, that's wrong, but it's not our place to execute that justice. That belongs to God. And God says, I'm going to keep you. Your call is to be faithful, to rejoice in me, to praise and, and glorify in me, and I'm going to sort everything else out. So thank God this is how Jude ends. 
Uh, otherwise, it would be very easy for us to feel like we have to be the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department and, and go after any sort of false teaching. Of course, we stand against it. Of course, we preach against it. Of course, we say absolutely not because we understand that what that does is it leads to immorality, but worse yet, it leads to people being tossed into fire outside the mercy of Jesus Christ. Our job is to take people, pluck them from the fire, and bring them into the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's what Jude is saying here. <sighs> we finished! Okay, questions, comments, concerns? Mm-hmm. Do you want me to comment on that? Yeah. Or do you have something to say about that, Clark? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this this is actually uh, a verse that that does get a lot of conversation generated if you look in commentaries, and even Calvin spends a lot of time talking about it. And 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 Calvin actually comes out on the side that it's not necessarily. Um, that these people were raised up for this specific thing, so that, which is ironic because you would think Calvin would say, you know, put them in the same category as Judas, for instance, um, the, the son of perdition. But, um, but I do think that part of it is, one, this is not anything new. Right? We, should, we should always expect false teaching in the life of the church because this is one of Satan's, if not his most, um, this is his favorite tool. I mean, have you all read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis? This is what this is about, right? It, it, it's just sort of this nuanced way it creeping in uh, of doing things. But I do think that there is some truth in what you're talking about, Clark, that, uh, that those who have crept in, that their designation uh, is uh, this this condemnation, which is destruction, which is kind of scary, but on the other hand, it's kind of nice to know that this is going to be their end, right? Again, nobody gets away with 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 anything. Um, so it's a given that people are going to creep in. Um, I've found that, and I, I talked about this a little bit earlier on in in one of the classes, that those who have crept in. One were deceitful. They, they weren't completely honest about why they were joining the church or they were joining for the wrong reasons. And in some of those cases, it wasn't that nefarious. You know, people who come in and say, well, I'm going to join a church because I really like the community here and, and I feel welcome here. That's a good reason to, to, to join a church. But lurking behind that is I don't really go in for this Jesus stuff. And then, you know, we go to church with this person for 10 years and we're in a small group with them. And then somebody says, well, you know, I don't really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And it really doesn't make any difference in my life whether he was or not. And you just sort of look at them and you think, I don't even know you. Right. Right. So uh, and then there are those, I think, who um, who will join the church and creep in in order to use the church for their own end. Um, to advance things, uh, to use a very obvious example in the Episcopal Church, this was a big deal back in the 60s. Tons and tons of folks went off to seminary to avoid the draft. Right, that, that's creeping in, right? So they actually didn't want to, to go into ministry, they just didn't want to go to Vietnam. That's not a spiritual decision, to not want to go to Vietnam. Uh, or it's to advance an agenda. And I, I've heard clergy say this before, that I joined, I was ordained in the church in order to change the church in this direction, over and against God's word. So, um, yeah, they, they not only, they came with a purpose. So it's not just that God has designated them for something. They actually have self-designated and chosen that themselves and are preaching a false gospel that encourages people to place themselves outside of the mercy of Jesus. 
which is really bad. But go read Calvin on that. It's really interesting. I'm sure all of you will. Uh, Andrew. Yes. Oliver. Right. But then you, you know, Jesus in Matthew 10 says, you know, when he sends the disciples out, you know, if they don't accept you, brush your feet off. Oh, yeah. How do you reconcile, where do we sort of reconcile, you know, that active plucking people out right. versus saying enough is enough? Yeah, like, okay, if you want to stay in, stay in um, the burning house. Um, yeah, this is the tension of the Christian life, uh, because on the one hand, we all ought to have an urgency about plucking people out of the fire, because time is short. We, we know not when he's going to come again, and I'm convinced that the only reason why the earth continues to rotate is so that more people can come into the kingdom of God, all right? So time continues on as a result of, of God's mercy. So there's an urgency that we have, but at the same time, there's a freedom that we ought to be able to enjoy to know that, and this is also like in, 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 um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about confronting uh, those who are in sexual immorality. And there's a funny little line that says, cast them out of the life of the church, giving them over to God, right? Trusting that, God could, could sort them out. And I, my testimony in, in working with different people is it's very rare that I sort of lay out the gospel or try to say, hey, you're in the burning house. And they say, you're right. Uh, it, 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 it might take a little bit of singeing <laughs> uh, for them to realize I'm coming out. Uh, and, and, so it, and that's God's work on their life. And so praying for that person, working with that person, uh, trying to, to lead them along. But there does come a place where I think that you are able to knock the dust off of your sandals and to realize, I sowed, Andrew watered, but God is going to have to give the increase. God's going to have to bring somebody else along. And I think in, in many cases that... <clears throat> we ought to be able to discern that. Um, it's a little bit harder, and I'm glad, you notice Jude is talking about individuals here. He's not talking about institutions. Does that make sense? Um, institutions, I think, are easier to discern, but, but when it comes to individuals, it's, it's harder to discern, but I do think that, that you can realize, I just have to give this over to God, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you end the friendship or the relationship, but it, it just it changes. So a book I've mentioned, uh, which is well worth reading, Rosario Champagne Butterfield, who gets the award for best name ever, uh, was, the, uh, was an English professor at Syracuse University. She was in a, a lesbian relationship, and um, she was writing something against promise keepers in the local newspaper back in the 90s, if you remember them. And... Um, and a Presbyterian pastor wrote her a letter that was really thoughtful. And she said she threw it away multiple times. And each time she went, actually, she recycled it. And she would go in the recycle bin and, and pull it. She'd pull it out. And she finally took him up on his offer. And she tells the story in her book, An Unlikely Convert, of just how gentle and patient this man and his wife were in leading her to Jesus. So in their first conversation, lots of meals together, lots of coffees, they didn't say, you need to repent and, and, and uh, you got to turn or burn. Uh, in fact, they didn't invite, invite her to church to the point that she became a little bit jealous and she would drive on Sunday mornings and park in the parking lot next to the church and like stalk the church people and watch them go in. And she said she would see like eight children piling out of a minivan and she was like, how can they afford that? You know, what, what's going on here? Why do they have so many kids? And, and she started laughing one Sunday. She's like, I am weird. Like, this is really creepy. Uh, and, and finally, she came to know the Lord. Uh, but it was just, you know, I, I think we need to be careful that we don't objectify people into spiritual statistics. So just because we get them in the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean we can be like, all right, well, good luck. 
Because in fact, what Jude is saying is the hardest part is when you become a Christian. It's there on in. That's when, when, when Satan comes after you. I mean, he, he's hammering tongs. He's bringing everything he can. It's when we're Christians that, that life becomes really, really difficult. So um, friendship is important. Hospitality is important. And, um, and trusting that God's going to do a great work in the life of the individual. And, and there is a point in time where you just have to give them over to God and say, God, you're going to have to sort it out. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. 